British Spy Stories, Season 2, The Kill Order. Episode 21. The round white terminal buildings of Minsk Airport stand resolute against a steady wind from the north. The Air Serbia A320 hovers in the light air, then begins its descent. Beyond the gates on the land side, Gabby waits with hands for Florin Babu to appear, from the queues dribbling out of passport control. He is nearly the last to emerge after a flood of business and tourist travellers spew out to waiting taxis and families. Florin nods to Gabby as he walks up to them, then looks across at Hans, who she introduces as the driver. The party of three move out into the car park, and Hans leads the way to a black Mercedes van. He pulls back the side door, revealing a luxury-fitted minibus, complete with a drinks cabinet. Babu steps inside, followed by Gabby. Then Hans closes the door and gets into the driving seat. Gabby produces a blindfold from the side pocket and hands it to Babu, explaining that he'll need to put it on once they're free of the road systems around the airport and on their way to the place where Jacob is living with his mother. There's a sleeping area in the van, and Gabby suggests he'll find it more comfortable lying there once the blindfold is in place. She also asks for his mobile phone, and promptly powers it down, then puts it in a clear plastic bag and gives it to hands to store. Babu listens intently to all of the instructions and makes no comment. After an hour... Babu has taken her advice and is on the bed and apparently asleep. Gabby climbs into the front passenger seat to talk to Hans, but keeping in character of Erica, just in case they're overheard. They pull off the motorway and head down a road to a set of gates on the left-hand side that turn up into a long driveway that appears to lead to a large house in the woods. Hans turns off again onto a woodland path and drives the van to a point where a break in the trees gives a view of the front gardens of a large house. Gabby opens the side door and calls to Babu. We're here, Florin. He pulls off the blindfold and climbs out, taking in his new surroundings. They live here? They're staying with friends as far as we can tell, says Gabby. Babu looks around the woods behind him and out at the large lawn spreading up towards a broad gravel pathway around the house. Do we go in? He says. That's not the deal, Florin. We'll stay here. Irina brings the boy out to play most days. You'll see him. The conversation dies away, and they sit on the van step, waiting for a sign of activity from the house. After twenty minutes, a woman comes out of the main door, blonde, in her late twenties. That's her. Florin barely enunciates the words. Irina turns and goes back inside, then appears again, holding Jacob's hand, and leads him out to the grass. She has a football and they start to kick it about. Babu stands and watches the scene, transfixed for a moment at the sight of his son. Suddenly he reaches into an inside pocket and pulls out a radio and shouts into the device, Go, go, go! From the lane they had driven down, the roar of two motorbikes erupts. At first it's only a sound, then Gabby and Hans can see the machines, pushing up the gravel drive towards the front door of the house, ridden by two men dressed all in black. The bikes dive off across the grass towards Irina and Jacob. 
but the mother and son don't seem to have heard or seen the men, and continue playing football. The bikes are within thirty yards of the pair now. If anything, the machines are accelerating towards their quarry. Twenty yards to go, then the bikes are next to them. Gabby raises her own shortwave radio to her lips. You can turn it off now, she says. The images of Arena and Jacob fade, then disappear. Babu explodes with anger. He can't believe what he has seen, but he can't deny what his eyes have told him. What the fuck, Erga? he screams. A hologram, Florin, projected from the house to make it appear like Irina and Jacob were there. So you don't know where they are? Oh, we know. In fact, we've got them in a safe place. So what is all this about? The deal was that you can see them from a distance only at this stage, she says. That's what you got. The bikes that were at the house scream down the track of the wood and roar up to the van. The riders dismount and draw handguns. You'll tell me where they are now, says Florin, continuing his angry repose. Papers first, Florin. Gabby is dead calm. I'm a businesswoman. I de-risk an operation, put in place contracts. It's not personal. I could kill you now, he says, taking one of the handguns from the bikers. You could, but then you'd never find Jacob, she says. If I don't show up within 24 hours, my team will move them somewhere else. Somewhere I don't even know. They'll be lost forever. Is that what you want? Babu can't think of other clever responses, so makes out his considering something to save face in front of his men. You have 48 hours. As soon as you produce the papers, we end this, says Gabby. It's not my deadline, it's yours. Babu says something in Serbian under his breath then turns away to the bikers and climbs onto one of the pillions. I'm staying right here in Minsk until you deliver, he calls across to Gabby. Florin, she says. He looks at her. Here's your phone. She throws the plastic bag to him and he catches it. Then the bikers open their throttles and push leaves and dirt up from the woodland floor as they disappear down the track. Gabby and Hans drive to the real house in the forest, where Panama is guarding Arena and her son. They discuss the afternoon, and Panama laughs at Babu's frustration. Gabby stresses that it's not about playing games. This is a deliberate campaign to make him feel on the back foot. The next stage of the plan is more difficult. She is clear in her mind that she won't be handing over Irina and the boy to Babu. But she needs more leverage on Babu to get what she wants. Gabby goes up to one of the bedrooms in the house, where she dumped her suitcase. She pulls out her laptop and raises an intel order on Oberon to give her full details of all of Florin Babu's black business empire. Maybe the fear of life in prison will be enough to push the man to find some common ground. The door of the Ristorante Bueno in Copenhagen opens and Dr. Hansen appears. Agent Carling takes an overly large gulp of beer as she sees him, and she walks over. She's wearing a black dress and gold jewellery. Hello, Francis, she says, and descends into the seat opposite him. After their initial nervousness has gone, they fall into a steady flow of conversation, and he finds it easy to talk to her. Freya seems interested in him, 
and he likes the feeling. She's intelligent, educated, and travelled. Freya gets him to talk about himself, though, his life, his childhood, his parents, his university, where he's been on holiday. She explores his life and listens carefully to his words. And what about her? She grew up in Copenhagen. Her parents always wanted her to be a doctor. She is one of four daughters, and they're all professionals in some field. Sophia is a COO of a large company in London, Josephine is a designer at Chanel, and Clara is a research scientist in Boston. What about his work? How did he end up as an assistant to a medical researcher? Do you like him? she says. The prof? she nods. He's okay. He's a bit set in his ways. He's been researching for forty years and he has a certain pattern each day. He gets up early, then would have gone for a walk, but he can't, of course. Why not? she says. Why couldn't he go for a walk? You know, getting old. He seemed pretty fit when he left the hospital. He'd rested then. Apart from the stab wound, he was in remarkable shape for someone his age. Carling is feeling trapped by his own words. Freya looks at him, unblinking, waiting for some sort of response. Well, well, maybe he was just feeling lazy. Why would he in that house? She says. That's not what he gave us his home address, when you brought him in and the nurses took his details. It was in Belgium somewhere. I don't know. Carling is starting to lose track of his lies versus real facts in this conversation. He was a fascinating man, says Freya. I had a long chat with him while he was in hospital. I wouldn't have thought viral research was interesting, but it is. Wow, is all that Carling can muster. Doesn't it interest you? she says, judging by his lack of enthusiasm. Not really. But you work there, don't you, Francis? Work with him in the lab. Isn't that your field of work, too? I'm more a live-to-work sort of guy, you know. He finds the remains of a smile somewhere inside him, and she puts her hand on his, and smiles back. Marcus Murphy turns the corner into Ganton Street, in London's Soho district, and pushes at the door to Maison Picard. He orders a beer and checks his watch, and it shows half-past five. He left the office early under the guise of an urgent meeting on a priority issue. His secretary had a look of some doubt on her face, as he had picked his coat up from the rack and made for the lifts on the fifth floor of Vauxhall Cross. He pulls out his phone and dials a number stored under Fish and Chip Shop. After one ring, a woman answers. I was wondering if Lucy is available tonight, he says. The woman tells him that Lucy is busy. All evening. The woman confirms that Lucy is not available at all, but Rebecca is later. I don't fucking want Rebecca, do I? He says. The woman is silent at the other end. Look, I pay good money. What sort of fucking service is this? The woman has ended the call. Marcus slams his phone down on the bar making some of the other customers look up at him. Then he takes two swigs from his beer and feels slightly calmer. The barman is standing nearby and walks over to Marcus. Let's not have another evening like last time, sir, eh? Sure, says Marcus. Ken? Yeah? You got any numbers for female company? <laughs> 